Psalm 31, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, page 461 uh, in the chair Bible, and encourage those of you at home uh, to take a copy of the scripture and to follow along with us. And I just want to encourage you to stay with us. Don't, don't log off after the sermon. Uh, we'd like for you to be a part of our time of prayer uh, as well this morning. So Psalm 31 is where we're at. I'm not going to read it. It's a rather long psalm. I'm going to pray for us and we'll launch right into it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have now to take up your word together and to study your word. Thank you for the time we have spent in the Psalms and for, for what it has meant and what it has done in our lives together as a church, our lives individually, the way you have continued to shape us. Thank you for the testimonies that I have received of how you have used these psalms in the lives of people. And Lord, I trust that today you will take this psalm and apply it to the hearts of men and women, of, of people who, who find themselves either in a difficult moment or, Lord, that you're going to help them make sense of what has transpired in their life, either in the past or, to, or what is to come. So lead us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. I've titled this sermon, My Times Are In Your Hand. Brothers and sisters, we, we, we need to be reminded as we're in this Advent season that as humanity walked in darkness, God sent forth his son, the light of the world. And what Christmas says to us, the Advent, the coming of Jesus says to us, is God can be trusted. God said he would do it, and he did. He promised his son, and his son came. Christmas is a continual reminder that we can trust the Lord, that our times are in his hand. Now, <clears throat> the main thing that I want us to see this morning in Psalm 31 is that even in the face of difficulty and uncertainty, the faithful take refuge in the Lord. And you're going to see a progression in this psalm from anguish to assurance. What this psalm illustrates, what this psalm proves, this psalm and others, that, that the psalms are used of God to meet a variety of human needs. The, the psalms are used beyond formal worship. They're used in the everyday experiences of our lives. So when we come to these moments of difficulty and uncertainty, Psalm 31 proves to be a model that we can be confident that God hears us, that we come by faith and we trust in him. Now, this was intended to be sung among the people of God because it says to the choir master, a psalm of David. Now, I want you to see the structure. You may want to note this in your Bible. Verses 1 through 8 is, is a prayer. Verses 9 through 24 are a prayer. Now, <clears throat> most people, most commentators would see these as two prayers either a repetition of the first one that David intends, 
or they're two separate prayers that have been put together to be sung in this song. Nonetheless, they both speak to difficulty and uncertainty. So first we want to see the first as a prayer for deliverance. So in this first stanza, David declares his trust in the Lord, the righteous refuge. He says, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame in your righteousness. Deliver me, incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. Verse two says, when you incline your ear to me, that means David believes and understands that when he prays, God hears him. So we too pray with confidence. We come to the Lord who is our refuge. And though it looks like at times we're going to be put to shame that, that life's going to overtake us, we know that according to the character of God, that in his righteousness, he delivers. So David prays, rescue me speedily. Last week, I was watching a report of the campfire. Uh, that's what they refer to it in California. This is a few weeks ago. When that fire ignited, it was, it was early in the morning. And it moved up the canyon uh, toward Paradise, California at the speed of a football field a second. That's how hot it was burning. Now imagine waking up to sirens and public announcements to get out of your house that a fire is moving. So it, it really was chaos in paradise as people began to try to move and to get out. And they were trapped. Most of the people that died, some 70 people died in paradise. They died on the road, not in their home. And as a group of people were stuck trying to get out, I mean, it was daylight outside, but it was pitch dark. They were stuck on a road. A fire truck was trying to move things and they saw two lights coming through the darkness toward them. It was a firefighter who had made his way to a bulldozer and was pushing his way through the fire and pushing the cars out of the way. He would fill the cab of the bulldozer with as many people as possible, take them to safety, and he kept returning over and over again. And I, Psalm 31 was already in my mind. That's who the Lord is. We may be trapped, but he's a bulldozer. He can't be stopped. He, he, he rescues his people. Why? Why? Because he's a rock of refuge. He is a strong fortress. There's a quote. Genuine trust in God is in him alone. It mingles not human help and friendship with the divine. It is silent as the grave, respecting all resources, but the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God. Our trust in him is never in vain. It is impossible because his nature forbids it. This truth in the scripture can never be more clear. Now, I just want you to turn a few pages back to Psalm 18. Psalm 18 is this 
big song of David of how you can trust the Lord. It, it covers multiple subjects. Unlike Psalm 31, it's just distress. And it begins this way. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. You see the twofold nature of why we call on the Lord. We call on him out of praise to him because he's God. And we call on him to save us because we know that he is the Lord. Now, in this next stanza, we see how David relies on the Lord, the faithful God. There are two confidences here. That the Lord is the rock who keeps his covenant. And as a result of that, he will deliver. As a result, David then places his trust in the faithful Lord. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net that is, they have hidden from me. It means he has cunning enemies. They're not just against him. They're strategizing as to how to trap him. You, have take, you take me out of the net they have hidden from me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Now, in this stanza, you see clearly that David rests in confidence in the character of God. For your name's sake, because of who you are, God, lead me, guide me. You have redeemed me because you are faithful God. You, you, you never go back in your words. Spurgeon, who can turn a phrase, said of this, of this stanza, these are the living words of David, but they are the dying words of Jesus. On the cross, Jesus said in Luke 23, 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus clearly is tying us back here to Psalm 31. He's quoting it directly. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord faithful God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ gave his life to redeem us. His act is not only the source of our redemption, it is the example of trusting God in the midst of great difficulty. Since Jesus submitted himself freely to the Father's will, even to death, Psalm 31 is teaching us that he expects nothing less from his followers who are suffering for the sake of his name. There's a reformer that most of you have probably never heard of. His name, most people would say John Huss. It's Jan Huss. He was a hundred years prior to Martin Luther. He really was Luther's hero. Huss lived in what is now the Czech Republic. For those who went to Prague a few, few years ago, got to see the monument to Jan Hus on the, on the town square. 
He was the first to begin to see the gospel of grace uh, in the scripture. He was one of the first to say we must rely on the Bible alone. And he began to teach this. I won't say he's the first. He was the first after the dark ages to begin to say it. The Catholic church pushed back hard. They condemned him to death if he would not recant. He refused. Now, that's a quick story about Jan Hus. Here's what happened. The bishop who was presiding over this part of Europe at the time from the Roman Catholic Church, after the last opportunity for him to recant and he refused, he sentenced Hus to death immediately to be burned at the stake. And here's what he said to him. And now, Jan Hus, we commit your soul to the devil. As they bound his hands behind him and began to lead him through the streets to be placed on the stake to burn, the word is over and over, Hus repeated, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, my Lord Jesus. You are the God of truth. Into thy hands I commit thy spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, my Lord Jesus, God of truth. Brothers and sisters, and from that ember came the Protestant Reformation and the gospel began to spread like wildfire again. We are to be these kind of people who trust our lives into the hand of the Lord. Now, this last stanza of the first prayer, you see this. David rejoices in the steadfast love of the Lord. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. Now, whether at this moment David's being told to trust in the false gods of the people surrounding Israel, we know that Israel gave in to this. David is clearly renouncing all other gods as worthless idols. And he proclaims to himself and to those around him that he trusts only in the Lord. Verse 7, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction and you have known the distress of my soul. So David looks into the past and he is grateful for the steadfast love of the Lord. He looks into the future, and he trusts in the mercy of God. He anticipates this with joy. I will rejoice and be glad. Verse 8, And you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. David is speaking here of his personal past deliverance, and that is giving confidence. But we, we can look beyond David. Let me go to Exodus 3. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This had to be in David's mind when he says, for you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy, but you have set my feet in a broad place. That means that you have opened things up for me. Now, this is the moment where the psalm starts over. 
So if you're trying to make it flow, this is one of the things I've been trying to teach myself in preaching the Psalms. We discuss this every week in preaching team. (laughs) Because partly we're Americans, and most of us have had a diet of preaching primarily from epistles, from Paul's epistles, which are very logical. You know, argument number one, argument number two, argument number three. Then we come to the Psalms. We want to impose that and say, here's argument number one, argument number two, argument number three, and they're building on each other. And then when this repetition happens, we're like, I don't understand. So just reset your brain, similar subject, new prayer. This is a prayer for relief. So deliverance is I'm in a situation and I want out. Now you're going to see some of that here. But primarily what David's praying here is whether this situation ends or not, whether it goes away or not, I'm asking for relief. First, David urgently describes his need for relief, verses 9 through 13. This is, James Boyce says, quote, this is the emotional heart of the psalm. Now what follows here is what we call lament. We don't do this well as Americans. We've been told, bite your lip. Don't don't show a lot of emotion. Just bear down and try harder here. David didn't follow this advice. David here is honest with what is going on inside of him. I always have to be real careful when I make a statement like it's about to come out of my mouth. I'm not painting everybody who's struggling with anxiety or depression with a broad stroke in what I'm saying here. But I wonder if fewer of us would need counselors and fewer of us would need help medically if we would learn to lament. If we would follow what the scripture here is teaching, that when we come to these moments, We would come before God honestly and say to him, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted away from grief, my soul and my body also. This is a description of intense grief. So so let let me help you Christians who, who... Come to a moment like this with a brother or sister who is in intense grief and you have to say something. First of all, don't. (laughs) The best things you can do in a moment like this is to just be quiet. But here's what you don't want to say to somebody who's in intense grief. It'll be okay. Nobody wants to hear that when you're at this place right here. One of the best things you can do is to share the grief. You're, pray for compassion, that you, that you are sensing what, what this person, don't, that doesn't mean you get overcome with it, but you ought to have compassion with the brother or sister who is finding themselves at this moment. Because he says, verse 10, for my life is spent with sorrow, my years with sighing. So David is saying this is, this is a culmination of grief after grief, maybe the same situation, that is piled up on him. And he says, my strength fails because of my iniquity. My bones waste away. And that's the first time he mentions sin here on his part. So is David saying, I'm in this situation because I have sinned? That's possible. 
That's possible. There are other Psalms that clearly teach that. Or is, 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 is David saying, the reason my strength is failing here is because I'm sinning by not trusting God. I found that to be true in my life. That something like this goes on and on and on and gets deeper and deeper and deeper because I refuse to trust the Lord. I refuse to admit where I'm at. Verse 11, because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors. So this is people who know me and know my situation. You, you ever notice this? Some of you have. Some of the people in, in, the, in the church who, who've had cancer said, I, I, you don't have any idea what this is like. Once people learn you have cancer, they treat you like you've got some kind of disease they can't get close to you. Can, can I help you out here? If you've got somebody in your life who has cancer, the next time you see them, please hug them. Let them know that they're not untouchable. Somebody who's going through some kind of experience like this does not need to become a reproach. So this, this is what we do. We assume that people have something wrong with them. Boy, I need to stay away from them because I don't want what they have. And I'm not talking about sickness. Like, like somehow we think that that can get rubbed off on us if we move toward them. That's not what we are as Christians. We bring the hope of the Lord. I am, back to, I am an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. Now, this is deep despair here. In other words, I'm alone. I have become like a broken vessel. So when, when a piece of pottery broke, you just threw it out. So it's broken. You don't hang on to it. You throw it out. I hear the whispering of many. Again, we see the use of the tongue, which is a part of the distress. There's terror on every side as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. Now, you can just write this down. We're not going to turn there. That sounds like Psalm 2. The plot against the Son. But let's do turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Let's hear the similarity of what David just expresses is how it describes the suffering servant. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one, from who, as one whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Brothers and sisters, Christ took what David describes and multiplied 10,000 times 10,000 upon himself. He is the suffering servant who is not requiring of his people to experience the same suffering. He took on in our place what we deserved, but he is an evident of trusting God in the midst of suffering, which leads us to the next section. David confesses his total reliance on the Lord. Now, verses 14 through 16 are very similar to verses 1 through 5. But I trust in you, O Lord, I say, you are my God. In other words, I'm never going to be disappointed. 
I, I, I totally and completely place my trust in you. And it's personal. You are my God. Verse 15. Now here's the real heart of the psalm. My times or my life, my times are in your hand. And he pluralizes times. So these, these particular points in time in our life, these times are in your hand, singular. Now, often you will hear the reference, and it's kind of curious, it doesn't say right hand. You'll see that other places in the scripture, but it just says hand. We're, we're held by the Lord. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Now, in the midst of this psalm, what do we need to learn? What do we need to apply to our lives as David expresses this in a need for distress and relief? Number one, the Lord is sovereign. My times are in your hand. Let's remember our definition. This has been the theme connecting these psalms, that God always and without fail accomplishes his purposes. That we as Christians are saying, we trust you, God, because you're going to accomplish your purposes. Number two, this is crucial. The sovereign God is a personal God. The sovereign God is a personal God. You say, why do you say that? Because I've talked to you. And this nuts me up, okay? But you're Christians. Why do you say to each other, good luck? Why? Well, you learned it from the culture, but is that really what you believe? Do you really believe that, that when we get in our cars in a few minutes, that whether we get home or not is up to luck? Good luck. We are not fatalists. We, we don't believe in the faceless, unnamed God who dispassionately, meaning with no emotion or concern, controls the universe. It's what Muslims believe. So if you're around a Muslim, and I'm not going to butcher the, the, the Islamic way of saying it, but a Muslim will say to you, it's in his hands. It's in his hands. So <laughs> if you're ever in a Muslim culture, like kids... So let's, let's imagine this is a busy highway. Kids will be playing like right up next to the highway and nobody's worried. And if you ask a Muslim parent, aren't you worried about your kids? They would say, it's in his hands. It's in his hands. That's, that's how they treat death quite often. We, we are becoming progressively in this culture less Christian influenced and more fatalistically influenced to where we just coldly take these things and treat them impersonally. Listen, David says, you are my God. My times are in your hand. That's personal. Number three, so God is sovereign. The sovereign God is a personal God. Number three, my life is in his hands in good times and in bad times. I'm dependent on him regardless. Number four, nothing comes into my life that is not first passed through the filter of God's good, pleasing, 
and perfect will, Romans 12, 2. Nothing comes into my life that is not first passed through the filter of his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I tweeted this earlier in the week. Spurgeon said, quote, Providence is a soft pillow for anxious heads. I repeat it. Providence, that is what we're talking about, that God is in control. Providence is a soft pillow for anxious heads. We might as well believe there is no God as to believe that he never sees, nor hears, nor cares about our actual lives. William Plummer. I'll repeat it. We might as well believe there is no God as to believe that he neither sees, nor hears, nor cares about our actual lives. Verse 16. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. That sounds like number six. The priestly blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. Everything here is riding on steadfast love. This word hesed. That, that, that Yahweh's commitment to his covenant people, to his covenant children. So verse 17, we can count on, Oh Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Now, this is a play on words. Here's what David's saying. Right now they're running their mouth about me. They won't speak to me. They whisper about me. They're the ones that are going to go silent. They're going to go sink silent down in the grave. Lying lips are going to be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and in contempt. Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, fully believing that, David now concludes this psalm. He blesses the Lord for his goodness and mercy. How abundant is your goodness? Here's what he's saying. The goodness of God is an endless well. It's never going to run dry. It has an endless supply. He stored it up in a storehouse that has no end. It is for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge you for you in the sight of of the children of man, kind. Now that means this, that our faith in the Lord is not hidden. It's public. We let it be known that we are trusting God. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men and st you store them in your shelter from the strifes of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. When I was hemmed in and it looked like there was no way out, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. God's forgotten me. I'm dead. Now watch the contrast. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. That's why David could write in Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord 
forever. So here's my question to you. Am I experiencing strength and courage as the result of seeking the Lord through prayer during times of difficulty and uncertainty? So let me help you. It's just the two of us and we're in my office. And you're in distress. This is not going to be the first thing I say to you. Okay? We're talking and you're, you're sharing. You're lamenting with me. I've handed you the Kleenex box. and Tears are flowing. What do I do, Pastor? What do I do? I'm going to ask you questions. Those of you who have ever sat with me know that's what happens. Are you, are you praying? Well, uh, it's really hard. You've you got to understand, this is really hard. Okay. Are you opening the Word? Are you reading the Bible? And I, This is way before I started preaching the Psalms. Are you reading the Psalms? Well, I, I really just don't. Okay. Sweet brother, sister, let me help you. I'm not your help. Your best friend's not your help. Here's what Psalm 31's teaching you. The Lord is your help. And if you want to rise above the distress and find strength in the midst of the difficulty and courage to live your life, that happens when we pray according to the Word of God. David now calls us all. Love the Lord, all you His saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Now, I've tried to meditate on this last phrase. He abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Who's he talking to there? I, I think primarily David's talking to the people who are attacking David. But then I, gotta, I have to think about Israel here, who in their pride turned away from the Lord. And God, God dealt with them. How can we, as modern Christians, live like the world, trust God like the world, and expect a different result in our life? Love the Lord, you as saints. The Lord preserves His faithful. He abundantly repays, repays those who act in pride. In other words, you act in pride, then, then you're going to take care of yourself. And what's going to be the end of that? Be strong, let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. So what does the word wait mean? It means to hope expectantly. To hope expectantly. So why are you waiting? Why are you hoping expectantly? Here's why. Because you believe he's going to act. That he's going to give strength and courage to your heart. 
Now, this is crucial. This is a quote. <laughs> this, is, this is one of the first things I, I, I read when I opened the commentaries this week. I said, this is really important. It's a very simple sentence. Quote, notice, Psalm 31 does not end with a promise that trouble will end. Instead, it ends with strength to meet the trouble with faith. Wow. So I'm not promising you that whatever it is that you're in right now is going to end. Here's what, I'm, here's what I'm showing you. Here's what the Bible's teaching you. Find your strength in the Lord, take courage in Him, and hope expectantly. Let's turn to Isaiah 40. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the Lord, is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. In other words, he understands what's going on in your life. Let me also help you out. He understands what's going on in the world right now, fully. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exalted, exhausted. But they who hope expectantly in the Lord, who wait for the Lord, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Commitment is abandoned living to the Lord God. It is God who has promised to guard you or to preserve you according to his word. The life of faith is to say that the outcome may be uncertain, but God is God. And I'm going to respond to him in love. And I'm going to live trusting in the strength he gives by faith. And I'm going to obey his word. And I'm going to hope expectantly for his redemption. Where did I start this sermon? In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. I told you. Christmas means God can be trusted. It's not the stories from my life that should prove to you that God can be trusted. It's the truth of Jesus Christ that proves to you that God can be trusted. He said he would send the Messiah and he sent him. And he died in your place. And he rose again to give you hope. And listen, brothers and sisters, he's coming again. And he's going to redeem everything and make it all right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. Thank you for giving us encouragement now. As we respond to you, I pray that we would respond by faith in song. 
So bless and guide us as we sing in Jesus' name.